would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. We've taken a break from that uh, last week to uh, remember some of the teachings of the Reformation last week, and uh, this week we are diving back into Ecclesiastes. And for those who haven't been here, or for those who have very short memories, uh, there's just uh, very uh, two important concepts that you uh, need to have in your mind as we're as we're looking at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Concepts that we've talked about over the last few weeks. And the first is that uh, that the teacher of Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is called the teacher. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes is writing from the perspective of one who's living, he says, under the sun. And uh, all the perspective, all of his, uh, his observations about life and all of his teachings are, are written from that perspective. He's writing about how the, how the world, what is true about the world um, from his own perspective, what he can see and touch and taste. Uh, this is what I experience in the world, and, and this is the way that the world is. And really very rarely in the book of Ecclesiastes does the teacher acknowledge that, that God has acted and spoken in our world and that uh, because of that there's other truth that we can know that's beyond our senses, beyond what we can see and taste and touch. And so the teacher is communicating to us about what is true about the world under the sun. The second concept that we've talked about quite a bit and that uh, has become even a part of some of our vocabulary here at Broadway is, is the Hebrew word hevel. In our Bibles, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we frequently hear the word meaningless. The whole book begins, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And I've been trying to communicate to us that uh, the Hebrew word that is translated as meaningless is the word hevel, which means uh, vapor or smoke. Now it's working for me. Okay, you needed to, to touch up there. Okay, so it's vapor or smoke. And, and, and by this, this idea of, of hevel is that, that life is, is temporary. It is here today, and it is gone tomorrow. And also that life is unmanageable, or it's paradoxical, or it's out of control. This is going to work today. So I've tried to use this before, but it's... Okay. So this is Hevel. This right here is Hevel. Okay. You have no idea where this is going to go. Um, I can't grab this vapor and put it into a box and control it. It's out of my control, and it's also very, very temporary, right? It's here this moment, and in probably less than a minute, you're not going to see it again. This is the idea that the teacher is trying to communicate to us about what this life is like. It is hevel. It is temporary, it is unmanageable, and it is out of our control. Those are two important ideas for us as we continue over these next few weeks uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, that the writer is writing from the perspective of life under the sun, and that he wants to communicate to us that life is hevel. Uh, you and I experience these, these hevel moments, right? Uh, a few weeks ago, I was driving up Crescent Avenue on my way home from work, and just as I was going along, a squirrel darted out in front of my car. I never saw it until it was too late. Just thump. Squirrel was just minding his own business, gathering his nuts for the winter, and the Volkswagen Jetta smashed him. It was meaningless. 
I looked back and I saw the squirrel on the road and just thought, that's Hevel. There's no reason for that to happen. It just happened. A few days ago, the alarm clock went off at 5.30, and I just really, really, really didn't want to give up, get up. I mean, you never want to get, get up, but that morning, I just really didn't want to get up. And my first thought that morning was that I can't escape the march of time. That's what one of the teachers says to us about how life is hevel. We, we can't escape the fact that time is always passing. Apparently, the very best that we can do is turn the clock back one hour, one time a year, and forward one time a year. That's the best that we can do to control this thing called time. It's out of our control. This life that we live in is hevel. It's out of our control, and it's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. And we don't, we don't like this. We hate it. We don't like that our life feels that way to us. When the alarm clock goes off at 5.30, we don't like that time doesn't stop so we can get a little bit of extra sleep, that it just keeps going. We don't like that death is real and that it is coming in our own lives. We don't like that. There's lots of other moments, too, where we have this experience, this understanding that our life is temporary and that it's outside of our control. Sometimes they're very insignificant and, and meaningless moments, and sometimes they're absolutely life-altering. These moments when we bump up against the inescapable realities of, of time and chance and evil and suffering and death and the mystery of God and his ways. Over the, the previous five weeks, we, we looked at the teacher's evidence that life is hevel. He, he lays out, here's the reason why you can know that, that life is hevel, that it is out of your control and that it's unmanageable and that it's here today and that it's gone tomorrow. These are five things that we all experience that tell us this. And I think his evidence is compelling, don't you? We experience these things and we can't help but feel like the teacher Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, everything is utterly meaningless, and we don't like that feeling. And so, we are always seeking, this is my point over the next five weeks, we are always seeking to try to unhevel our life. We are always trying to find things, or do things, or have experiences that will make us feel like this world is a little bit less hevel than it really is to make it more manageable, to make it more under our control, to make it feel like we can stand here and that this world is going to last forever. And this is exactly what the teacher tells us that he goes about doing. He does some experiments in life. He tries out some different things to see, maybe I'll find meaning here, to see if that thing will make life a little bit less hevel. And so there are at least five things that the teacher of Ecclesiastes tries out and tells us, uh, I tried these things in order to try to unhevel my life, in order to try to find meaning in some, some thing here under the sun. And these are the, the five things we're going to look at, five-ish things. Uh, pleasure, which we'll look at today. Wisdom, wealth or power or success duty or service to others, and religion or piety. The teacher in one way or another says that these are things that I've tried or things that people try to unhevel life. 
I've come to this conclusion that life is like this, and so let me test out some different experiences. Let me test out some different things that will cure me of this feeling that I have all the time that my life is like this. Let me give pleasure a try or wisdom, or let me try to build some things or maybe give religion a try. I'm going to give these things a try. And let's see if one of them will be that key to make me not feel this way about life. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, none of them work, okay? And it's important to note that all five of these things are good things. All five of these things are things that God created and that he established to be a part of human life. But as the teacher is going to discover, none of them are final things. None of them are ultimate things. None of them have that power to unhevel our lives. None of them make this life last any longer. None of them can satisfy us in any meaningful way. And so my question for you today and for the next few weeks will be, what do you do when you experience those hevel moments in life? What do you turn to? The teacher talks about at least five things in Ecclesiastes. You could probably discover more in there, but I bet that whatever it is that you're attempted to turn to when you experience that realization that life is the way that it is, that life under the sun is hevel, it will fall into one of these five different categories. So today we're going to look at pleasure. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. The teacher says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water, groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born into my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of the kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem ever before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. In other words, in all this, I was very aware of what I was doing. He said this, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. I've experienced the, the hevel reality of this life, so let me test some things out to try to fix that. And he tries lots of things that will bring him pleasure. Verse 2, laughter. Verse 3, wise and being foolish. Strange thing. Verses 4 through 7, accomplishing great things and being your own boss. Verse 8, lots of money in your own personal entertainment and all the sex you could possibly want. And the teacher says that he did all of it as a bit of an experiment to find out 
if any of it would satisfy him, and it doesn't. I'm going to satisfy all of my immediate desires. If I want it, I'll take it. If it smells good, I'll smell it. If it tastes good, I'll taste it. If it sounds good, I'll listen to it. If it feels good, I'll do it. Verse 10, I, decide, desire, um, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I looked back at everything I had done, I realized that it was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Of the five things that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, this is probably the, probably the one that is most common in American culture, right? Wealth and power and success might be the one that competes with it. But pleasure is something that we pursue with all our hearts as Americans. We Americans love pursuing pleasure, and I suppose in that way we're probably not all that different from other cultures. We're just really, really good at it. We're experts at it. We're the best at it. And our role models here in America aren't heroes, aren't men and women of great moral stature. Our heroes are entertainers. Most of us as Americans have more opportunities to pursue pleasure than any other people in human history. We have hundreds of TV channels, and now we don't even have to wait until Thursday night at 9 o'clock to watch what we want. We have it what? On demand, right? Our devices can keep us constantly distracted with all sorts of games, and the taste of pleasure just grows and grows, and all we want is more and more and more and more entertainment. Now, I thought about spending some time here at this part of my sermon giving a bunch of statistics about how good we are as Americans at pursuing um, entertainment, how many hours of TV we watch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think I really have to make that point, do I? I think we kind of know that about our neighbors and about ourselves, right? This is something that's trained in us. We pursue pleasure. Ecclesiastes 1.10 seems to describe us very well. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. I think that describes us fairly well. So this morning, I don't want to beat, beat you over the head with all of this. I don't want to try to make you feel guilty. Instead, as we talk about our temptation to turn to pleasure as a way to unhevel our lives, I want to do three things. First, I want to very simply warn you of the danger of allowing the pursuit of pleasure to rule your life. First thing, warn you of the danger of allowing the pursuit of pleasure to rule your life. Secondly, and we're going to do this each week as we look at each of these five topics. I want to take a few minutes to consider the way that our culture encourages us or trains us to pursue these things. This isn't an accident that we are good at pleasure. This is something that has been given to us, passed on to us by the world around us and the culture around us. We're being trained. You could say we're being discipled to pursue these things. And so I want to take a few minutes to pause and to think about the ways that we are being trained in that way. Today and probably a few other weeks, we're going to look at TV commercials. I can't imagine a better way to, to look at a TV commercial and examine what is this commercial trying to say to me about the world and about who I am and about how I'm called to live in it. How is it trying to disciple me in some way? 
And the third thing I want to do is to direct our attention to the one who is the source and goal of all of our pleasure. So give us a warning, secondly, to pause and to consider how our culture trains us to pursue these things, and third, to point our attention to the source and the goal of all of our pleasure. Here's the warning. Allowing the pursuit of pleasure to rule your life will always leave you disappointed. Always leave you disappointed. There's an author that I've been curious about for a while. I've tried to read a couple of his books, but they're just kind of way over my head. I don't understand them, but I have managed to get through a couple of his articles. Um, his name is David Foster Wallace, and he, he wrote a commencement speech that he entitled, This is Water, which I think is kind of a way of saying this is Hevel. You know, it's something you can't really control. It, it does its own thing. And so this was a commencement speech to a bunch of graduates who are about to enter into the world. So just kind of imagine that, you know, a lot of times those commencement speeches are, you know, really cheering them to, to go for their goals, you know, to, to do whatever they want, to pursue their dreams. And this is what David Foster Wallace says uh, to these graduates. He says this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will, never, uh, and you will need um, ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. When we put pleasure at the top, when pleasure is in that place in our lives where we find real meaning, we are always going to be disappointed. It will always fall short. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes says this very clearly. In this whole section that I just read for you, he bookends in verse 1 and verse 11 with this statement, I did this, I pursued pleasure, and it was meaningless. Far from pleasure being something that satisfied him or gave him meaning, far from being pleasure that uh, made him content with life, it did exactly the opposite. It disappointed him over and over and over again, and it does the same to us if we put our pursuit of pleasure at the first place. It will always disappoint us. So our world is always trying to turn our attention away from God and to train us to pursue the five things that we're gonna talk about, and particularly to train us to pursue pleasure. And again, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some ways that our culture does that. Uh, today, we're going to look at a TV commercial. And this TV commercial is for uh, a device which is absolutely amazing. It's called the, the Nintendo Switch. Does anyone have Nintendo Switch? Okay, I, I watched this commercial, and I'm amazed that this thing works the way that it does. But I, I want you to, uh, to take a, a look at this commercial and I want you to ask two questions of yourself. And I've, I've written them in your bulletin in the outline for this sermon. Two questions as you watch this. First, 
How is this commercial seeking to train us to unhevel life, to make us think that we have the power, the ability to somehow unhevel our life? And the second question is this, how does this commercial encourage us to pursue pleasure? I want to say to you that um, if you're a gamer, this is not against you in particular. And if you're not a gamer, you're not off the hook, okay? This is, uh, I want you to take the Nintendo Switch and I want you to substitute that with whatever you're tempted to pursue for your pleasure, okay? And to pretend that that's it, okay? And so uh, this is a a couple minutes long, uh, but I I think you'll see um, some of what we're getting at here. amazing. It is an amazing thing. But I really thought that this commercial was a spoof when I first saw it. It begins with a guy getting up in the morning and getting and sitting in a beautiful park, overlooking the city with a beautiful sunrise, and he's playing a game. And then he, he goes to an airport, and he sits next to a beautiful woman and she smiles at him, and he plays his game. They're <laughs> playing together, man. And then he gets on an airplane, and he's flying 30,000 feet in the air. He's experiencing the miracle of human flight. He's playing a game. And then the device becomes this part of this road trip with friends. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, my life in college without some of the road trips I took with those guys, and they're on a road trip with friends, and they're playing a game. Then a night playing basketball that finishes with playing a game, and then let's have a beautiful dinner on a rooftop on a beautiful evening, and let's play a game. (laughs) This commercial is saying to us, wouldn't it be great if we could just always be entertained? Where there wouldn't have to be a time when you'd have to be bored even for a moment but you'd always have your entertainment with you. And all commercials try to do this to us in one way or another. They attach pleasure, they attach satisfaction, they attach contentment in one way or another to some product. Buy this product and you will receive these things. And friends, I want to say to us that we need to be on guard against that as we enter into the world, as we consume media, as we are walking in the world, as we're listening to advertisements, as we're having the world say in very explicit ways and also very subtle ways certain things about who we are and about who God is and about what our world is. We need to be on guard of those messages that we're receiving. Because they're trying to tell us over and over again that life under the sun is permanent. That life under the sun will satisfy us if we can only acquire enough of it. But the teacher in Ecclesiastes is clear, it's not enough. He's tried it all. There is never enough here under the sun. But what's important for us to say as we move to the last part of our sermon is that pleasure itself is not the problem. God made us to be creatures who have desires, creatures who pursue pleasure, pleasure 
Desire is a good thing. The goal of the Christian life is not to become people who deny ourselves every single pleasure, you know, kind of become Amish or monks or whatever it is, flagellate ourselves, you know, whip ourselves. That's not the goal of the Christian life. We are desiring creatures. God made us that way. At the very beginning, he, he made the Garden of Eden and put Adam and Eve there where he made the garden beautiful. And he made fruit that was what? Pleasing to the eye. God didn't have to make his world taste good, but it does. And he did that as a gift to us because he loves us and because he created us to be desiring creatures. The problem is not desire. The problem is not pleasure. The problem is when we aim our life at pleasure. When pleasure becomes the goal of our life, that's when it becomes a problem. When we try to use pleasure as the thing that will unhevel our life, that's when it's a problem. The desires and the longings of our heart point beyond themselves to our creator. Our longings and our desires are attached to our creator. They're attached to him who is beyond the sun. The problem is not pleasure. The problem is when pleasure becomes the goal, unhooked from God and from his plans for us. C.S. Lewis says this so well. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. We are pleased with sinful things and sometimes not even sinful things, but just trivial things. We're far too easily pleased and satisfied. And in the next chapter of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, for just a moment, I, I think for the only time in the book until the very end when the editor comes in and gives a different word, I think for the only time when the teacher is talking, he, he has this revelation of something that comes from beyond the sun. He says that God has placed eternity in each person's heart. In every single one of us, there is this knowledge that there is something beyond all of this. And the dissatisfaction that we experience, the total emptiness that we experience when we go after pleasure, after pleasure, after pleasure that's offered to us here under the sun, that dissatisfaction is a gift from God. After a shopping spree, when you come home and you think, why did I buy all of this? Or that emptiness and sickness that you feel when you're drunk, or the regret and emptiness that you feel after looking at porn, or the realization of the wasted time that you spent after four or five hours straight of television, all of those feelings of emptiness that we have. That's God saying to you that you were made for something more. I have placed eternity in your hearts, pursuing pleasure and rest and contentment in things here under the sun will always leave you feeling this way. Pleasure and desire isn't the problem. It's that our hearts have shrunk so much. They're, they're so small and so weak that they're satisfied with the littlest things that won't last. 
Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy and where thieves will break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. And then he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you invest your treasure, your time and your energy, what you give yourself to, that is the thing that owns your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if your heart is invested only in things here under the sun, then your heart will share in the destiny of those things under the sun. So Jesus says to us, seek first the kingdom of God. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says to us, I've pursued pleasure in everything that life here under the sun can offer, laughter, entertainment, wine, women, and singing. I've tried all of it, and it's come up empty for me. I tried to unhevel this life through pleasure. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of righteousness, and then what happens? All of these things will be added to you. Jesus says, the meek will do what? They will inherit the earth. If we seek Christ first, then we will find true and lasting pleasure. If we pursue pleasure first, then whatever we pursue is going to feel empty. But if we pursue Christ first, then he gives meaning and purpose to everything that we do and to everything that we participate in. In another piece, uh, another place, C.S. Lewis says this, and this is, this is great. He says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you'll get neither one. It's exactly what Foster Wallace was saying is, if you aim at money, you're only going to need more of it. If you aim at beauty, you're only going to feel ugly. If you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added to you. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But aim at the earth, make the things of the earth your goal, you will get neither one. We experience that every day when we place pleasure first in the emptiness that that brings into our lives. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Since you have been raised with Christ, Paul says, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is the first and final fact of your life. God has moved into your life with his grace, and he has made you alive eternally. And that's where we begin as believers. And so Paul says, set our hearts there. This is a way of him saying, set our desires, set our pleasures in the heavenly places where Christ is. And then all of life is lived through that lens that God has come to us in Christ in his grace and in his mercy and has given us this gift. And now all of life, we live through that lens. 
So this doesn't mean that we never watch TV or a movie or a play, a video game or read a novel or whatever it may be, but rather we engage the world with different kinds of eyes, with eyes of people who have been raised with Christ and everything begins to take on a a new definition. Everything begins to make sense. When we're watching a movie or TV, we can see where even someone who doesn't know Christ has touched on some bit of truth that we can go, ah, this is something about the world that I can understand better now. And sometimes we watch a movie, we can say, that is, that is wrong. That is, they're offering me an assumption about the world that is false, and I need to reject that. We need to begin to engage our entertainment with those eyes on that we have been raised with Christ, and that that is the first and final fact of our life. And to engage our entire world and our entire life, all of our entertainment, all of our pleasures, with, with that in mind, we are made for so much more. This morning, we heard examples um, of the persecuted church. We heard about things that are happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is kind of a final warning for us as we think about what it means if we put pleasure as the first thing in our life. We hope that we would stand in the face of persecution, right? We hope that if if that came towards us with physical violence or loss of property or whatever it may be, we hope that we would stand in the face of persecution. But I want to ask you a question. If every day in our life we are only saying yes to the pleasures that are offered to us, if that's the way that we are training our heart and our mind and our flesh, what makes us think then the day when persecution comes, that we're going to do something else. The reason that an athlete, a golfer, can stand up and with millions of people watching him, hit a drive 350 yards right down the middle of the fairway is because he has practiced over and over and over again to do that one thing. In our lives, if we only practice pursuing pleasure, if we only practice saying yes to the pleasures of our flesh on that day, on that day when we face persecution, we're not going to be ready for it. So we need to daily, daily, as Jesus says, take up our cross and follow him. That doesn't mean deny ourselves every single pleasure, What it means is to be paying attention to what is first in our lives and to not say yes to everything that comes our way because we're being trained by our culture all the time, every day, to simply say yes to whatever is in front of us. Our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church are examples for us of the possibility of what might come in our lives. It's reminders to us that we need to be ready for those things. And... Preparing for those things starts today. It starts now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that the first and final word about our life is what you have done for us. That in Jesus Christ, in your grace, in your mercy, came to us and saved us and delivered us. That is the first thing is true about us. 
Father, I pray that we would live according to that truth, that we would set our hearts, our desires, our pleasures on you, and that we would allow you to define everything else that we are to pursue here in this life. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.